So we're in Acts chapter 1. We're going to talk about the book of Acts, and today we're going to talk about the 40 days. We're going to talk about the 40 days that happened between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the beginning of the church. We're going to talk about what took place, and we're only looking at three verses today. They're powerful verses. They're important verses, and they'll really teach us what it is that God is trying to stir in our hearts, things that we need to be doing. Well, first, we're going to begin with verse 1, and we're actually going to see just kind of an introduction from verse 1, and this is what it says. The former account I made, O Theopolis, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So we get an introduction right here at the beginning, and we want to kind of introduce this book and tell you a little bit about it. Number one, we know the author is Luke. Luke says of the former account, he's talking about the gospel of Luke. It was a two-part series. Some, some commentators said that more than likely it was a three-part series, but Luke never got to the third part. I don't know. I know that by divine inspiration, it's a two-part series. It's Luke and it's Acts. And he's writing to the same audience. He's writing to a guy by the name of Theophilus, which means friend of God. What a cool name, right? Uh, some of you guys will go out there and name your children Theophilus now. It means friend of God, and, and that's the idea behind it. He's, he's writing to this guy, and he says, I gave you an account earlier of all that Jesus had done. In other words, I gave you an account of the life of Jesus. I gave you an account of everything that was going on in his life, and now I want to give you another account. I want to give you the account of what took place after Jesus left this world, after Jesus went back to heaven. I want to give you that account so that you can see what's going on in the church, and that's the purpose of the book of Acts is to give you the history of the church. It's to show you how God moved in a mighty way. And I'm here to tell you, I love the book of Acts because I want to get back to being an Acts kind of church. I want to get back to being the Jerusalem church. That's where we need to be. That was an amazing church when it started out. It was an amazing church that carried on. And that's the kind of church we should desire to be. Now, the book was written around 62 AD. It was written around the time after Paul entered his Roman imprisonment. We never get to see really much beyond that. We don't get to see his release and where he goes after that. We don't hear about his death and things like that. It just kind of abruptly stops that Paul is in Rome as God has promised. But it is an amazing book to tell about the history of the church, and it was written in 62 AD. Well, this morning, we want to look from verses 2 and 3 at three major insights into the 40 days after Jesus's resurrection. Three major insights into the 40 days after Jesus's resurrection. We're going to see the first one is he gave commandments to the apostles. Look at verse two with me. Until the day in which he was taken up after he through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen. One of the first things that he did was when Jesus appeared, he gave a few more commandments. Jesus knew that he was not going to stay on earth. Jesus knew that he was going to go up to be with the Father. And he had a few last-minute details he wanted to give to his disciples. Now, you think about that for a moment. If he had a few more details to give to his disciples before he ascended into heaven, these are details that we need to take note of and we need to be doing ourselves. These are things that he said, hey, listen, you're getting ready to start the church. You're getting ready to be what I've called you to be. You're getting ready to start something that's never been done before. I have a few instructions for you. Here are the things that you need to do that are important for the church to carry on. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 28, 9 to 10, where he tells the ladies, he says, tell my disciples to go to Galilee. Go to Galilee. You say, well, what, what kind of commandment is that? Why is that important? Well, first off, they had to be obedient to get the rest of the commands. Can I just tell you something? If God has already told you to do something... 
and you have failed to do that one thing, he's not going to tell you to do something else. He will not tell you to do something else until you've obeyed his first command. Until you've done what he's called you to do, until you have listened to the plan that God already has for you, until you take the first step in the right direction, God is not going to give you any more. Now, you may say, Lord, I'd like a 10-year plan. I don't know of any people, too many people in the Bible that got a 10-year plan. I don't know that any people in there were explained how step-by-step God was going to guide them every step of the way, other than those that God said, guess what? I'm going to be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path, and I'm going to give you the next step. Once you take that step, then I'll give you the next step. Be obedient is what he was teaching them. And that's funny, in John chapter 20, verses 21 and 23, Jesus gives his second commandment. And his second commandment he gives to the disciples is he says, I send you. I send you. Now, I want you to understand that this is important for the church. It is important for you to recognize that this building is not the church. This is not the church. You are the church. The word ecclesia means the called out ones. It has nothing to do with the four walls of the building. It has nothing to do with sound systems. It has everything to do with the people of God that are within the church. And he says this, I send you. In other words, an important aspect of the church in the early church and the church today is that God is sending us out. He is sending us to proclaim the gospel, to tell others about what Jesus Christ has done for us. Now, I'm going to tell you, back in the 80s, 90s, we had this mentality. It was the field of dreams mentality. If we built a building, people showed up. Can I tell you something? In the 2000, 2010, 2020s, they don't care what you build. They don't care that you go to church. They don't care where you go to church. They don't care about those things. Why? We used to be able to invite people to church and they would just show up. Now you invite people to church and they'll give you 10 excuses why they can't come. It's just going to happen. And the reason why is because God is telling us it's time for you to get off the pews, go out into the alleys, and compel them to come in. By your witness, I send you. I'm telling you to go. The third commandment he gave to those disciples, he gave it specifically to Peter. When he restored him in John 21, he said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, he told them this. He told Peter this. He said, I want you to teach my people. I want you to love on my people. I want you to show them how to live. And after that, he gives this other command. He says, follow me. Isn't that amazing? He said that throughout his ministry as he walked with the disciples. Hey, come follow me. Hey, come and see. Come follow me. And he's telling his disciples to do the same thing. Follow me. I want you to keep following me. Now you might say, wait a minute. How do we follow somebody that isn't physically here? We all know the little game that we did as kids, follow the leader. If you got behind somebody, you were supposed to do exactly what they did. You were supposed to follow them all the way around. And so when we hear follow me, we think of that kind of mindset. And that's what the disciples were able to do. How were they going to follow him if he was up in heaven and they were down here on earth? What's real simple? They followed his principles. They followed his guidelines. They were obedient to him. They did everything that he had called them to do. And then they could say, like Paul, they could say to other people, hey, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's what discipleship is all about. He said, I want you to follow me. And the fourth commandment he gave was the Great Commission in Matthew 28. Now, you guess what? You're going to see some similarities to this than some of the other commandments he's given. 
Because the very first word in there, of course, he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Okay, so think about this for a moment. How many of you live on earth? For those of you that are uncertain, the answer is yes. You live on earth, okay? We live on earth. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven. We know that. The angels listen. They do whatever God commands them to do. They follow everything. He, 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 pull, he tells them to go send a message. He tells them to go answer a prayer. They go. Everything is done. We know that that happens in heaven. He says, but all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That means he has authority over you and me and everybody here in this world. He has the authority. And so he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. And then he says, go. Go. Go make disciples. Now, I want you to understand we've lost sight of that verse. We misunderstood that verse because we think it means go and make converts. No, it doesn't. We don't, we're just not supposed to just win them to Jesus. We are called to disciple them. You say, well, wait a minute. I don't know how to disciple them. I've never been discipled. Well, we're working on that. We're working on that. But even though you may not understand or you may not know how, you're still called to do it. We are called to make disciples. Go and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you, even to the end of the age. That was his last words almost before he ascended into heaven. He had a few instructions for the people. He gave some commandments. And if these commandments were important to the disciples, they're important to you and I. Let me tell you something. I've heard of people talking about when they lose a loved one, a father or a grandparent. And before that person passes on, they kind of tell their kid or their grandkid something. They say, man, I see great things in you. Go and do what God has called you to do. Now, here's what I'm saying about that. Man, if my grandfather or my father one day when he passes away, if he says something to me like that, let me tell you something, that'll charge you up real quick. Because you're thinking to yourself, he was using some of his last breaths to tell me what I need to do. These are some of Jesus' last breaths. And he's saying, look, i got some things I need you to do. I've got some work you need to accomplish. And if these are what he spent the last few moments teaching the disciples, you better believe it's important. It's vital. And it's essential for our church as well. So we see he gave commandments to the apostles. Number two, we see he presented himself with infallible proofs. Look at me in verse 3. To whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days. There's where we get the 40 days. He presented himself. Presented himself. You know that after his resurrection, Jesus presented himself nine or ten times. You may say, well, how many? Well, again, I'll tell you why I say nine or ten. Many believe ten. Some believe nine. But here they are. The first time he presented himself, he presented himself to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20. It's amazing because she goes to the garden. She's already been to the garden. She leaves the garden with the other ladies. She comes back to the garden. She sees the two angels there. And they ask her, they say, why are you weeping? And Jesus speaks to her directly. She believes he's the gardener. Why are you weeping? She says, haven't you heard? Haven't you heard what's happened? I just want to know where his body is. Could you tell me where his body is? And Jesus goes, Mary. Rabboni, teacher, it's you. And he showed himself to her. He showed himself to the other women right after that, Matthew 28. He shows himself to the other women who had gone with Mary at first, and then they go back, and he shows himself to them on the road, and they grab him by the feet, and they don't want to let him go. 
After that, he then shows himself to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. In fact, they're walking down the road to Emmaus, and as they're walking, they're talking, and they're talking about the things that have gone on. And Jesus comes up and goes, hey, what's going on? And they're like, are you the only stranger in the, in the world right now? How do you not know what's happened? We, we had this guy that we thought was the Messiah, this guy that we thought was the, 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 the one who was going to help Israel out. We thought this guy was, was it, and they, they crucified him. What do you mean what's going on? And he goes, hey, let me show you from the Scripture what it says. And he goes all the way back to Moses, and he begins to guide them from the books of Moses all the way to the present day. And all of a sudden, he goes into the house with him. They invite him into the house. He goes into the house with them. He breaks bread, and then he's gone because once he breaks bread, he opens their eyes, boom, he's out of there. And they go, man, did our hearts not burn within us when he was with us? Fourth time he presented himself was to Peter. We don't know when this happened, but it says as the, right after the Emmaus Road incident, it says, and he showed himself to Simon. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 agrees with that, that he showed himself to Peter at some time. Following that, he then appears to his disciples without Thomas. He just pops in the room. Can you imagine? They're sitting there. They're still in an upper room. They've not seen Jesus. They don't know what's going on. They've heard all the details. They've heard people talking about that Jesus has risen. They've seen the empty tomb, but they're standing there, and they're in this room, and all of a sudden, Jesus pops up, walks in through locked doors. He just comes in. He stands among them, and they look at him, and he goes, hey, see here my hands, see my feet, see my wounds, look at me. You know it's me, and he presents himself to them. Well, the very next week, Thomas is complaining because he wasn't there. Isn't that just like somebody? Well, I wasn't there, so I don't believe it. I didn't see it with my own two eyes. I don't believe it. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not. But he comes in there and he goes, I won't believe it till I can put my finger in the nail prints. I won't believe it till I can put my hand in his side. And boom, Jesus shows up just like that when Thomas says it. And he goes, hey, come here, Thomas, touch me. <laughs> touch my hand. Touch my side. See, it's me. See, it's real. And he goes, my Lord and my God. After he showed himself to those disciples, he showed himself to seven disciples who decided to go back to fishing. That's right. They went back to fishing. They decided, hey, you know what? Jesus is gone. We got to go. We got to make money and we got to live. And so let's go back and do what we've been doing. So seven guys go back to fishing and they're out there fishing. And guess what? They catch nothing. Absolutely nothing. And then Jesus goes, hey, guys, uh, cast your net on the other side. I mean, could you imagine? These are professional fishermen. Could you imagine if they looked out there and Jesus goes, yeah, we didn't think about that genius idea. We only thought about fishing on the left side. I guess we'll try the right side now. Man, they cast the net in. They didn't question it. And sure enough, they pulled in a haul of fish like you wouldn't believe. After he showed himself to those seven disciples while fishing, he then shows himself to the disciples in Galilee. And this is why I say that it's possibly nine and not ten is because it also says in 1 Corinthians he showed himself to 500. He gives the great commission and he begins to proclaim those words to those people. I believe the 500 were there when that happened. And God gave the great commission not only to his disciples but to 500 others that are talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And finally he showed himself to his brother James who became the leader of the church of Jerusalem. He presented himself. In other words, he wanted to go, hey guys. I'm here. I told you I'd be back. Don't you love that? He actually did Arnold Schwarzenegger's line, I'll be back. He just got to come back and go, I'm here. See me? I'm presenting myself to you. He was there. He showed himself. But here's the thing that I love. The writer of Acts, Luke, says this. He showed himself, presented himself with infallible proofs. Now, understand what he's talking about there with infallible proofs. He's saying, you can't disprove that I showed up, and here's the proof that I am who I say I am. Here's the proof that I've done what I said I was going to do, and here's the proof that I'm risen. You ready for this? The first one, the empty tomb. 
The empty tomb. You say, well, man, we've heard that a hundred times. What do you mean the empty tomb? Okay, it's, it's an empty tomb. We know, we know. We go there today, it's still empty. Well, let me just explain something to you. There's something you have to do if you want to declare that there's a tomb. Number one, there has to be a body in the tomb, right? There has to be a body in the tomb for it to be an actual tomb. Jesus borrowed the tomb because he didn't need it very long. He was there for three days, then he rose up. He was in the tomb. It's empty. You say, oh, well, you know, there's all kinds of different things that could have happened. In fact, many, many historians have tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They say, well, here's the problem. The problem is, is the ladies went to the wrong tomb. Now, I always loved that one. They did follow Joseph of Arimathea, and they followed Nicodemus, and they saw where Jesus was buried. They also saw that they put a garrison of guards in front of that tomb. So, you know, I understand some people can get lost and they can go to the wrong place and think they've arrived at the right place. So, yeah, okay, I understand that. But here's the thing. If they had gone to the wrong tomb, all the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and hypocrites and all those people, all they had to do was say, hey, guess what? You went to the wrong place. Here's the tomb. Here's his body. He's still dead. He's not there. But they couldn't do it. Why? Because they went to the right one. Now you say, well, wait a minute, I've heard that they just stole the body. You mean those wimps? You mean those cowards that ran away in the Garden of Gethsemane? Those guys? You mean to tell me that those guys who were fishermen were able to overtake the guards that were at the tomb, those weaklings were able to roll back the stone, drag the body out, and nobody have proof that they dragged the body out. They left the wrappings. For some reason, they unwrapped him, and they left the cloth there, and then they drag him out, beaten, bloodied, and all messed up, and they take his body, and they steal it, and then they go preach that he's risen, and they die for it? How foolish are you? They didn't steal his body. God took it. He just rose up and he said, I'm here. Infallible proof. Go to the tomb. It's still empty. Then there's the angel's proclamation. You think about it. There's an angel sitting at the tomb. In fact, there's two. Now, it's funny. One gospel says two. One says one. Now, I want you to understand why one can say one and the other say two. Because only one spoke. The one guy that wrote about it was only talking about the one angel who spoke. And he just simply said, the angel said... The angel said, he says, he's not here. He's risen. <laughs> they didn't have to have a big message. Hey, by the way, while you were on your way, I just want you to know that God decided to roll back the stone and he decided to help Jesus rise up from the dead and he ascended up into heaven where he's going he's gonna to come down periodically for you. And, and so now that you go in here, you'll find that the wrappings and the napkin and everything is set in place and you have all of these things. Everything's been taken care of and we just want you to know he's not here. And here's what God, no, all he had to say was, he's not here, he's risen. The angel's proclamation. The third infallible proof was Jesus knew Mary. I mean, think about it. She's there and she's weeping. And he says, now I love this. He says, woman, why are you weeping? He calls her woman at first. And she don't know who it is. She thinks it's the gardener. She goes, do you not know what they've done to my master? Do you, not know, do you know where his body is? Can you tell me where it's at? And I love it because all he has to simply say is, Mary. You don't know why that's important. You may say, well, that doesn't seem like much of an infallible proof. But here's the thing. The shepherd knows the sheep by name. 
and the sheep hear his voice and they know it. When he said Mary, she thought he was the gardener, but the moment he spoke her name, let me tell you something. If God speaks your name, you're going to know it. When God knows you the way he knows you and he calls you by name, man, is that going to be exciting. And he calls out and he says, Mary. And she, Rabona, teacher. He spoke to her. He knew her name. Another infallible proof is the women held him. Let me explain something to you. You may say, well, it could have been a ghost. You can't hold a ghost. Right? They held his feet in Matthew 28. They grabbed on. He goes, don't hold on to me. I got things to do. I've got places to go. I have things to do. So they held him. I love it with the guys on the road to Emmaus. He broke the bread and blessed it. A ghost can't hold bread. He broke the bread and he blessed. Oh, it was just a spirit. Spirits can't hold bread either. Can't do it. He was more than a spirit. And I love this. He entered a room with locked doors. How cool is that? They thought they were safe, and then there's another in the fire, right? He just walked right on in. What's up, guys? Peter, didn't you lock the door? No, man, I, I, I thought you locked the door, Thomas. What, what, what's going on here? What, who, who, how did he get in here? Who is this? And he goes, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Now, I love it when he, he showed himself to Thomas. He said, come here and touch me. Come here and touch me. You could, you could touch him. Also, in Luke 24, he ate and he drank with them. Now, let me tell you something. That'd be kind of cool because you, know, you ever seen those Hollywood movies of ghosts and then they eat something and it drops to the floor? He ate it and dropped to the floor because he wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. He was real. He was resurrected. He was miraculous. Another infallible proof is the miraculous catch of fish. He pulled in 153 fish the day they went back to fishing. Only because Jesus said, cast it on the other side. He had already done that before. You remember when he called them to be disciples? He said, Master, we have, we have worked all night and we have caught nothing. He goes, push out a little bit from the shore. Wait a minute, Lord. We, we fish at night because that's when the fish come out. We fish in a certain area because that's where the fish are known to be. And you're going to tell us to push out a little bit from the shore and cast in our net. And sure enough, they cast it in. And as they began to pull the haul in, it began to pull the boat over. And they whistled for their partners to come over there. And two boats had to pull in all the fish they had. Yeah, he showed up in a miraculous way. Then there's the restoring of Peter. You say, well, how's that an infallible proof? Peter denied him. And Jesus said, go get my disciples and Peter. And when he sees Peter, he said, Peter, do you love me? But I'm going to tell you, for us today, the most infallible proof, one of the most infallible proofs is the transformation of the disciples. For us today, one of the infallible proofs is the transformation of the disciples. You say, well, what do you mean? We're talking about guys who were fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. Uh, these were guys that, that, that really nobody would have called, and God changed them. 
You say, why is that important today? Because you can be an infallible proof of Jesus' resurrection because of what God's changed you from. How God has turned your life around. How God has moved you and motivated you. How God is calling you and using you. You, having a transformed life, can be an image to those around us that Jesus Christ is risen, that he's living within us, and that his spirit is moving and still changing lives today. You and a transformation that takes place. I want you to understand how these guys were transformed. Think about this. They went from being afraid to being assured. They went from being babies to being brave. They went from being cowards to becoming courageous. They went from being deserters to being daring. They went from being empty to being enduring. They went from being fearful to being faithful. They went from being gutless to being gallant. They went from being heartless to being heroic. They went from being inconsistent to incorruptible. They went from being jokes to joyful. They went from being kneelers to nightly. They went from being lily to lion-hearted. They went from being meek to men of steel. They went from being neglectful to being noble. They went from being omitters to being obedient. They went from being passive to be passionate. They went from being quitters to being quickened in the spirit. They went from being rejectors to being rejoicers. They went from being spineless to strong, traitors to tough, undependable to unafraid, from vagabonds to valiant, from weaklings to warriors, from yielded to the yoke, and from zeros to zealous. God changed them immensely. They were not the same men. They were completely different. That was an infallible proof when every last one of them was willing to die for Jesus. I wonder if that transformation's happened in you. I wonder if you have been so transformed that when people look at you, they go, That person has never been the same since they met Jesus. That person will never be the same since they met Jesus. I'm telling you, the transformation that Jesus Christ can do in your lives is immense. It is life-changing. And boy, when he changed their lives, they went out there, they started the church, and God blew it up. God went out there, and he burst forth in a mighty power of his spirit and did great and awesome things. He printed himself, presented himself. With infallible proofs, lastly, last thing he did was he spoke about the kingdom of God. Look at me again in verse 3. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. You know, the kingdom of God is used 32 times in the book of Luke and six more times in the book of Acts. It simply means the realm of salvation for those who repent. I want you to understand that. That means the realm of salvation to those who repent and believe. You see, the kingdom of heaven sometimes in the gospel of Luke was referred to as a place. In fact, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, it says, Then they lifted his eyes toward his disciples and said, Blessed are you, poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Sometimes it referred to as a place. Sometimes it was referred to as a thing to be preached. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, he said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also because for this purpose I have been sent. He sent the disciples out and he told them, he said, preach the kingdom of God. Isn't that amazing that he sent them out and he said, I want you to preach the kingdom of God. I want you to to preach about the realm of salvation to all who repent and believe. The whole purpose of the church, mind you, get this, the whole purpose of the church you ready? Is not to appeal to you, 
It is not to entertain you. It is to reach the lost sheep who are not yet of the fold. That's the whole purpose. Now, some of you come in here and you say, wait a minute, but I like the church a certain way. I didn't know we built it for you. I didn't know that you sat on the throne. I didn't know that you died on the cross for my sins. We didn't do it for you. Church is not about you. I still love JFK's speech. That's not what this country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. It's time for you to stop asking, what can Jesus do for me, but what can you do for Jesus? We have got to get back to the mindset that we are preaching the kingdom of God. And here's how he spoke to them in Luke 24 to prepare them to share this message. Luke 24, beginning in verse 44. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Let me, let me just put it into perspective. Here's what he said. I did everything those 39 books of the Old Testament said I'd do. Every last detail. There's nothing I left out. Everything it said, I've done. And everything it says I'm going to do, I'm going to do. He says every one of them. Then verse 45, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. If you've ever had a hard time reading the Bible saying, I just don't understand it, talk to the one who wrote it and he'll help you comprehend it. He opened their understanding. Verse 46, then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. It was necessary, get that, it was necessary that he die. There was no other way. There is only one way. There's only one way of salvation. It is through Jesus Christ. There is no other name by which you must be saved. There is no other way to get into heaven. It is only through the blood-bought sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, risen from the dead three days later. That and that alone is what will save you. It is necessary for your life. You must have it. If you don't have it, I hope you'll get it today. I pray you'll get it today. It is necessary for you. Without that blood-stained sacrifice, you and I are destined for hell. Without his presence in our life, we will be living for hell. That's the thing. God will change you. He'll transform you. It was necessary that he do these things. And he was telling the church, you better be ready. If it's necessary, it's essential, and you better preach it. In verse 47, and that repentance... Let's not stop for a second right there. And for repentance. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of preaching out there today that will tell you you don't need to repent. Let me tell you something. The very first thing you have to repent of is what you sent the Son of God to the cross for. Every last one of us has to repent of that. God, it was my sin that put him on the cross. It was my sin that nailed him there. It was my sin that kept him on the cross. It was my sin that killed him. My sin. Forgive me, Lord. 
Every one of us has to repent. But here's the thing. If you've become a Christian and you think you've become perfect, woe be unto you. We still have to repent daily. We fail when we sin. We repent. Repentance is an ongoing thing that needs to keep happening because we want God's presence in our lives. That repentance and remission of sins should be preached. Let me tell you something. Any church that won't preach that needs to shut down or call itself a social club and just have it as a dance hall. Plain and simple. They can have their lights. They can have their smoke machines. They can have their lasers. They can have all that stuff in their church. But if they won't preach repentance and remission of sins, they just need to call themselves something else other than a church. It's that simple. He said, and you should preach repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. All nations. Please understand what he's talking about there. I want to say something that has driven me nuts that I've heard pastors say time and time again. Giving is not the same as going. That's just to make you feel better. You are all, get this, all. Hear me now, all. Do you hear that word? Say it with me, all. Let's say it again, all. That means every last one of us is called to present the gospel to all nations. You say, I don't feel comfortable going on a mission trip. I won't get to sleep in my bed. I don't get to eat the food that I want to eat, and it might make me sick. And they say over there that the water, if you brush your teeth with it, it can make you sick. And so if I can't drink the water... I'm not going to go. And you know, Brother John, I, I, I don't have the money to go. Never had to be a problem. You know, Brother John, I, I, I can't fly. Well, we'll knock you out like B.A. Baracus if we have to and put you on the plane. Stop making excuses. Can you imagine standing before God of judgment and going, Well, Lord, you gave me a fear of planes. No, 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 no. What is, scripture says, I have not given you a spirit of fear. So it ain't God that gave you that fear. It's Satan who gave you that fear. And that's just an excuse you use not to go. Preach to all nations. All nations, beginning at Jerusalem, verse 48. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise. Woo. I send the promise of my Father upon you. What's the promise? The Holy Spirit. Amen. Now you understand, if you're a Christian, everyone, I, I, we might go a little Pentecostal for a moment. You ready? Amen. All right. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to. Every one of you in here has the same Holy Spirit within you that everybody else in here has. You say, well, Man, they just express it more. Can I explain something to you? That's because they're filled more. Some of you, your cups are half empty. Some of you, your cups have like a drop in them. Some of you, your cup is full. And some of you are wondering where your cup is. But you all have the Holy Spirit. Every last one of us has the Holy Spirit within us. He's the promise. And if God has given a promise, he is faithful to fulfill his promise, and he will fill you up. 
And the thing is, is when the Spirit fills you up, it will change you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. That promise came with power. Man, I love preaching that passage. I get to it next week. I can't jump on it just yet. Man, he'll fill you with power. Let me tell you something. Some of you guys need to be recharged. I got recharged this week. All right. Some of you need to be recharged. Some of you need to have, some of you need to get a battery put in. Man, I'm here to tell you the Lord, in those 40 days, he did some amazing things. In those 40 days, he really began the start of the church. And he began to show his disciples what he wanted them to do. And he began to give them the plea and the plan. And he began to show them what he had plans to do. And he showed them how he was going to do it. Because I promise you, those 11 guys that were sitting there that were still cowering in an upper room most of the time are going back to fishing and going back to their old life. And those 7 and 11 men that, that God had to get a hold of, and he began to speak to them, I promise you, they didn't have the power to start the church they didn't have a plan to start the church they didn't know even what the church was until God got a hold of them and said hey let me tell you something I need you to go to this city and I need you to wait some of y'all need to wait because God's got something he wants to do now, I'm going to tell you God has got something he wants to do right here Amen. I told you I was praying a couple of weeks ago and as I was walking around God told me it's coming. So I'm just sitting back. And, I'm, and it's so funny because right around that time, this song comes on, on uh, air one. I'm going to wait on you. I've tasted your goodness. Trusted your promise. I'm going to wait on you. Man, when you've tasted and you've seen, let me tell you something. I hear Krispy Kremes coming to Lebanon. That puts a song in my heart. <laughs> I've tasted your goodness. <laughs> Woo, please don't bring it to Lebanon. I'll be in so much trouble. <laughs> when you've tasted and you've seen the mighty God we serve, let me tell you something. That's just to whet your appetite like an appetizer. The problem is, is there are far too many people in the church that are making a meal out of the appetizer. I, I love what C.S. Lewis said one time. He said, we have far too many people that are making mud pies in the streets when God has set the table. Don't be satisfied with the mud pies. Let's take a seat at the table and let's dine with the master and let's see what he's got plans to do.